Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart and I am a PhD student at the University of Kent. And this is a recording for the Sex, Sexualities and Sex Work special series. Today, Ayu Saraswati has come to talk to us about her book, The Pain Generation. Can you tell us who you are and what your area of expertise is, please? Absolutely. First of all, uh, thank you so much for having me today and allowing me to share my work with you. It's such an honor. Um, I've listened to your podcast, so it's it's really, really exciting to be here today. Um, so I am Ayu Saraswati, I'm currently an associate professor and chair at the Department of Women's Studies at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. And I, um, my research uh, revolves around gender, um, race, and media, and the new media. And that is um, the book that we'll be talking about today. Excellent, excellent. So what prompted you to write the book? And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I really, really enjoyed the book. Like it's a it crossed with a lot of my areas of interest and I got a lot from it. So what prompted the book? Yeah, thank you so much. And um, uh, in the coda or uh, at the end of the book, I talk a tiny bit about why I um, wrote this book. So um, I'm, I'm sure you're kind of like, you know, familiar with how the social media is kind of like um endless self-promotion about, oh, look at me, I'm doing this, I'm traveling here, you know, all of that, right? And so it was fun, obviously, in the beginning, it was fun. And if you think about it, um, Instagram uh, was only established around 2010, right? And so this has only been around for like 11 years. So everything new in the beginning is exciting. And, you know, we just want to be a part of it. And it's lots of images. And so um, it was exciting and then when you look at it from in terms of like a travel blogger uh, perspective it is um you know or like when they share that pictures is really really lovely and uh, inspiring and I use you know my air quote here inspiring but then I kind of you know and then I learned that I I too do that and then my friends who are feminists or academics and all of that we begin to do that But then um, at the time, I wasn't aware of what's happening, right? Obviously, after I wrote the book and then recognizing that I also performed this thing that I called the neoliberal selfie gaze um, in my book, now it becomes clear of what was um, happening, right? But at the time when things were happening, I wasn't really sure like what was going on, but I just found it like a little bit problematic like that you know like when you feel when you saw a posting and you're kind of like hmm, something is wrong here but I'm not quite sure what happened right and so I think that was what kind of like prompted me um to like write this book I was like okay so something is a bit you know troubling kind of like annoying about how we kind of promote ourselves um endlessly on this platform again including myself so I'm not criticizing other people here maybe I'm just criticizing myself um and then the same thing. So, so, th- so that's one thing, right? Uh, this sort of like endless self-promotion and all that kind of stuff um, wanted me to take a deeper look or, you know, kind of like a closer look at like what's, what's going on here. So that's one. The other thing too is about how we share our emotions or things that happen to us, again, endlessly on social media, you know, Facebook and all of that. Again, I'm talking about myself here. So, you know, if you feel defensive, yo, you know, I'm talking about myself here, you know, as well. Um, because in, in person, I tend to be kind of, you know, especially in a group setting or whatnot, I tend to be uh, the quiet one. I tend to be shy. I even have that nickname. So I was growing up, but then on social media, I would just share things like, well, this happened to me or this happened to me, right? Um, and things that provoke emotions in, in, in myself and other people, right? And so again, I was like, hmm, well, let's take a look here. Like what, what is going on? What's going on? 
And so I wanted to look at um, how we process emotions, right? And in my, my first book, I talk about race um, and gender and how race is affectively constructed. And I use the word affect here, you know, uh, drawing from affect theory and, and maybe for um, some of the listeners who may not be familiar, but affect is, there are like many, many different definitions of it. But the one that I use in my first book was from Teresa Brennan. And um, she talks about affect as physiological shift that accompanies judgment, right? Mm -hmm. So this means that when um, we feel embarrassed, when someone says something, and then we can feel our cheek is like kind of like warm, right? So that's the physiological shift. Or when we look at someone so beautiful, and something is happening in our body, like, oh, what's happening, right? And so that's the affect, right? And so in my first book, I talk about how race is affectively constructed. What that means is that when you when we see person of a certain race and of a certain gender, there's something in our body, that effectively responds to, to that image, right? Or to that person that we encounter. So that's in my first book. So in my second book, I'm still again, fascinated or um, indebted to affect theory, but in a way that, you know, how do we process our emotions, right? In other words, how do we experience and um, express our emotions on social media differently than otherwise we would in, um, in, in real life. So that is the other part of like why I wanted to write this book. Yeah. And that, that fits really well into my first question because there are loads of phrases in here that just totally just like sort of like picked my, you know, sort of like really piqued my interest. And the, one of the phrases that I was going to ask you about, which you've mentioned, is the neoliberal selfie gaze. So I wondered if you could talk us through how the book discusses that idea, the neoliberal selfie gaze. Absolutely. So um, the, the main argument of the book is how neoliberal logic shapes and limits, right, our feminist activism on this platform, so on social media, right? And so I wanted to kind of like have a language to talk about, you know, like, what do I mean by this, right? And so um, in one of my first chapters, so chapter two, I talk about Rupi Kaur, um, an amazing Canadian um, poet, and, and she's very, you know, um, very famous, very popular, and I too really, I follow her Instagram account. This is an amazing, uh, amazing work, right? Um, and so in my kind of like talking about or providing example to like what neoliberal selfie gaze is, I, I kind of like give an example of um, an acai bowl, like let's say, right? Um, when we want to post something on um, our social media, let's say uh, breakfast, and I just mentioned like an acai bowl. Um, if we want to post this on our Instagram account, we need to make it um, very interesting, right? Very entertaining so that people will click on that. People will want to follow us, right? So let's say we just post a bowl of, you know, fruit, acai bowl or whatever that is on the table without background, without the gorgeous beach, you know, like in Hawaii background, right? Or use the filter, right? To make the color of the fruit like pop up or without the uh, caption, right? That is funny or entertaining about this, you know, what we're eating, then it would not be as interesting or entertaining, right? And so what I'm talking about here, therefore, um, is what I call the creation of, you know, um, phantasmagoria or like social media as phantasmagoria, which is, um, you know, how do we create this? Again, I'm using the word affect here, creating the affective atmosphere, right? So that we're kind of like, you know, interested in that. We really, really like this image. Like it provokes something affectively in us, right? In order to do that, we have to do all these things, right? Um, and Rupi Kaur is amazing in doing that. First of all, on her Instagram account, I talk about this in my book, is that she would alternate between image and her poem, another image and poem, right? Um, and not only that, the, the image of uh, that, that she includes is, is very, what I call from the neoliberal selfie gaze, which is, you know, positioning the self as, you know, entertaining, as inspiring, right? As smart, right? So that's kind of like the, the idea of a, a good neoliberal subject is, yeah. 
like you take personal responsibility of like making yourself, you know, look good or be better, you know, those kind of stuff, right? And so in her case, she has this amazing poem in itself, uh, but then then she would have a sketch, right? So it's it has the black, I mean, sorry, it has a white background and then there's the poem, but also she would like have like this sketch um, that some people may call like childlike um, sketches, right? And so, and not only that, then it's followed or alternate by images. And these images many, many times um, show image of herself, sometimes in Vancouver, you know, like in, you know, places around the world, right? That shows that she's this, you know, cosmopolitan, glamorous, you know, very, again, this powerful woman, yeah. right? And so that really creates that um, uh, contrast from this sort of pain, I mean, a poem about pain or about um, abuse in a relationship or whatnot, right? But then you follow that instead with, um, you know, not images of like blood or some or like heartbreak or something like that, but of this strong, powerful woman, right? So that again, creates that shock. That creates what I call that phantasmagoria, right? That creates like, you know, uh, that, that um, invites people or provokes um, emotions or affect in, in, in people's body. Um, and so that's um, what I mean by the neoliberal selfie gaze, right? It's a gaze, it's a way of seeing, it's a way of storifying the self, right? And I use that word, storifying uh, the self, um, so that when we, we see that, or when we read that, we become entertained and, and inspired by it, right? Another example, just so that, you know, um, the listeners may have better ideas is that when someone posts that they just had a divorce or they just had like a, you know, a breakup or something, if they just like, oh my God, my life sucks, blah, 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 right? Uh, then it's not entertaining. It's not from that neoliberal selfie gaze, right? Because again, neoliberal subject means that you have to, you know, post something that is, um, okay, this happens, breakup happens, divorce happens, but I'm going to like, you know, come out of this, you know, better than I was before, right? And all of those very inspirational um, sort of quotes even, right? So I had to laugh that um, at one of my um, uh, conversations with my colleagues, um, he was mentioning that, you know, I don't look at my Facebook anymore, he said, because everybody turns into a Dalai Lama, he said. So I was like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's actually perfect, right? He notices that. And so what I'm doing here is to name that and simultaneously trouble that. And so I named that phenomena uh, by that concept, neoliberal selfie gaze. Yeah, but also as well, sort of like, so my understanding of neoliberalism is that that is a kind of like this totally entrepreneurial sort of like social actor who never needs any like real community support or anything like that. It doesn't need any sort of social security or anything like that, you know, out of the say, out of the ashes of their divorce, they will pick themselves up and create a whole new like side hustle. Yeah, they won't just get get divorced, they'll become a divorce guru. Yeah, and that's and that's kind of what we do, isn't it? I mean, but also as well, it's and I, I don't know if you do this, but I have certain times during the year when I know that I'm gonna engage with social media. When I know that's coming, I the month before I will drop out because I like to be um uh sort of like new and exciting like I'm very aware and I don't know if you are of like sort of like that kind of like that kind of like digital exhaustion that we almost suffer you know you know because there's a fine line isn't there between somebody who's really playing their media their digital media well and overexposing themselves absolutely absolutely Uh, but even this what you're saying too right this sort of strategically right I mean you have this sort of like strategies of like how to manage your your media presence or like social media presence as well. I mean, in some ways, again, depending on like why you're doing that, right? But if you, if, if a person um, is, is doing that so that, you know, when they post something, it becomes new and exciting for the audience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, when they drop something, they say, then it becomes like a hit or something like that. Then that in itself is an example of a neoliberal selfie mm-hmm. gay, yeah. right? 
that they, like you said, this, this very entrepreneurial sort of like subjectivity. They yeah. know how to kind of uh, target the market. They know how to connect this thing with that thing, right? It, but, but again, like you said, this becomes that sort of like individual sort of enterprise, right? They do this. They have to be aware of this. They market their own things, their own books. Again, you know, I do that. I'm guilty of that. Uh, and so, so, so but I, I'm, I'm saying that um, rather redundantly, right? Uh, in some ways, uh, keep mentioning that I do this, I do that, because I do want the listeners or the readers to um, realize or, or not feel as defensive when they read this, because you know what, this is so pervasive. Yeah. Right. I do this too. Like I internalize this and I post this on social media. And as I was writing this book, I was like, oh no, I'm doing this and I'm doing this a lot. I mean, this is why I kind of like, okay, well, thank God I, I wrote this book because now I, at least I have a better um, understanding of my own social media practice. And I try to, um, you know, not successfully, but I tried to kind of like minimize that neoliberal selfie gaze. Because you're, 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 in your introduction, you discuss the danger of feminist, active, feminist activists using technological apparatus and digital platforms that are governed by neoliberal logic. What do you mean by that? How does this book discuss this, these dangers of, that are presented to like, sort of feminist activists? Yeah, so absolutely. So, so the first three analytical, analytical chapters, I talk about Rupi Kaur, I talk about Mia Matsumiya, and I talk about Margaret Cho. Um, and as an example, I'm just going to use a different example, um, the 12 Days of Rage, which is um, a, a hashtag campaign that Margaret Cho um, started. And again, Margaret Cho, love her. Um, anytime I find myself in the same city as her, I will always try to go to her show. Um, I thought she was brilliant. And then uh, actually I, I, I heard about the 12 Days of Rage um, campaign when I went to uh, one of her shows mm. and I looked it up and I was like, oh, okay. So I'm, you know, I really want to know more about this. And um, the 12 Days of Rage is her campaign to end sexual violence, right? Sexual violence, sexual abuse, sexual harassment. So in itself is, is, is what we do as, you know, feminist activists, this is, you know, um, a great endeavor, right? And she took it to in Twitter, not only to Twitter, I mean, she posts videos on YouTube, right? So it's kind of like a social media um, campaign. Now, the problem with that, and I talk more about it in the book, is that when we have a celebrity talk about it, when we have this um, campaign, like social media campaign, more people become aware of it, right? Um, even with the Me Too movement, we began to see certain actors who um, got persecuted, right? And so this is a good sort of step. But what I'm saying is that maybe we're missing the next step um, because this, all of these sort of um, campaigns are still from that neoliberal selfie gaze in which it is about the self, right? Uh, rather than, or like changing the self, changing the perpetrator's behavior rather than kind of like structural uh, changes. Mm. Uh, the Me Too movement, and again, I talked just a tiny, tiny bit because my book is not really about Me Too movement. In some ways um, it is, uh, but, you know, prior to Me Too hashtag uh, becoming uh, big or, you know, and especially by Asian American women. I mean, in some ways you can, you can see that this book is about Me Too, but in some ways it isn't, right? But I did talk about even the name Me Too, right? Um, and I talk about how, like, you know, in some ways this is why it resonates with a lot of um, people or, or women at the time because this is talking about me, Right. Yeah. Again, uh, me is the most important subject in the neoliberal um, sort of um, selfie, you know, gaze or understanding. Right. Because this is about me, 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 me. Right. Um, and so it kind of like, yeah, me too, me too. Obviously, the two tries to highlight um, that this is a, a structural issue, structural problem, that this is a collective problem, not just me. Um, but but in some ways. What it does so far is it, it allows certain individual uh, to become the problem, right? Certain men become the problem, but then the structure itself, the corporations itself yeah. has not changed, right? And so I talk a little bit about that in the book, right? And so like when we have um, celebrities uh, such as uh, Margaret Cho talk about this, yeah, this is great. But at the same time, even this campaign has not asked 
specifically for what are like the structural changes that need to happen, right? right? Where is that link? Again, if it's just another link, right? To sign to the petition. But even then at the end of the book, I say like, you know, this is not enough. If we want to do, um, want to have significant changes and structural changes, then what needs to happen is not just on digital media, not on social media, but we need to also bring our bodies, you know, um, in these different spaces or consider other environments, right? Um, so I think that's some of the problems that I, that I kind of like mentioned in my book is that, you know, we need to be careful that our feminist activism is not being neoliberalized, right? It's not being co-opted by the neoliberal machine of the social media. And it has, right? And so again, I just want to be clear. And even in the book itself, I like repeatedly saying, you know, please know that I'm not criticizing these specific feminists as individuals, right? Because to do that is to do a neoliberal reading of what they're doing. Again, what I'm doing is I analyze the structure, right? But in order for me to provide specific examples, I look at specific individual um, Instagram account, but in order to expose how the structure manifests on their social media accounts or campaigns. And it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because as soon as you say that, instead of, instead of me too, it should be, they do it to us. Yeah, because it should be a much wider discussion. But also as well, like we have to be really careful that we don't feed into that whole kind of carceral feminism thing that that I'm sort of like totally obsessed with at the moment. So it's kind of like, and and we've seen it with the Me Too, haven't we? It's become a, a witch hunt of an of a couple of individuals when actually there's a much bigger issue that is ignored when we perform these witch hunts yeah so we bring it so what happens is is that the uh the criminal justice system gets bought in but but still maintain you know has this appearance of uh, addressing issues but still maintaining the status quo absolutely and i think that's their brilliance i mean in terms of maintaining how you know it seems like things are happening right like seems like we are protesting seems like you know people are saying oh you know i can't do this anymore i can't do that anymore but really the structure hasn't changed you yeah. know many women still feel uncomfortable even in you know like office settings or even in terms of like relationships or even like what you talked about the criminal justice system hasn't changed right we haven't really transformed that And so that's why uh, I think this book is sort of like a call to, you know, let's focus also, right? And I think I also use that word also. I'm not saying that we should not focus on the individual sort of linear behaviors and and whatnot, but we need to also look at the structure, right? I mean, what are like some of the changes that need to happen at the structural level? And I think I use the word ecology in my book purposefully, not just sort of like structure, not just sort of like the environment, uh, but, you know, this, this sort of like the notion of ecology, right? So we need to look at, you know, like what else needs to happen here? It's not just this one thing, not just individual behavior behavior for as long as we're stuck there you know those who are in power or the patriarchy or all of these sort of like violence will continue to happen because nothing really at the fundamental um more foundational sort of like level has um has changed or shifted yeah so i like to swallow the annual introduction to like literally i went over this introduction about four times i really enjoyed it It oh thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) so you mentioned in the book that a corporation sort of co-opting feminist activist ideas to improve corporate branding Mm -hmm. how do you describe how do you discuss this in the book yeah so i think this um you know when we talk about um I think one of the things that I talk about was um, Matt Lauer, but it's just like very, very briefly about like how in the Me Too movement, you know, we talk about how um, he, you know, obviously was um, being one of the, like the Me Too, like being attacked by the Me Too, right? Um, But in some ways the NBC itself, right? um, Is is not really, like we don't really hear anything um, from, from the corporation themselves. And in fact, um, the, um, the corporation will now have uh, TV shows, right? And I'm not just talking about like one, but you know, across the board, um, they have programs that seemingly um, 
portray sort of like feminist sort of actors or activism, right? Or like they have those those um, those sort of like activities that support, you know, feminism. Or and this, I don't talk about this in, in the book, but also even universities. We know that there is Me Too PhD, right? You know, in terms of um, women um, or people being um, sexually harassed in the academic settings. But as we know too, nothing significant has has changed, right? In terms of the, the structure of like, you know, how are we going to report this differently and significantly, you know, like what are the, the, the things that are happening? And yet, right, and yet what happens is that we have lots of talks about this and I talk about like lectures and whatnot and they're like courses about this, whatever. And so in some ways, um, again, there's not corporations, but a different example of how this is being commodified, yeah. right? And that's, I guess that's what I meant. It's like, it's, it's being commodified or being co-opted, but you know, by shows or by advertisements now that celebrate, you know, feminist activism or classes or lectures, but, but what is happening? But what is really happening? Or, or we talk about Black Lives Matter. Again, I do not really talk about that in, in the book, but I mean, we think about that too, right? You know, we have, you know, different things happening, but have we hired, right, more Black scholars? I mean, like, what are you know, the significant changes that are happening um, in, in all of these different um, environments. I was thinking as well, while she was saying this about um, the, the discussion that Laura Augustine has around the, the trafficking industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can use that kind of sort of same logic when you talk about human trafficking and the massive uh, business, the massive industry that is built up around this that's that's uh, that's brought in increasing legislation, but which is increasingly damaging towards the women it purports to help. So it's almost like we have to be really careful as feminists that we don't actually contribute to the the, the problem that we're trying to highlight. You know, it's like we may be highlighting one focus of you know sort of inequality, but you know by doing that that we sort of like set this machine rolling that then we can't stop. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's always hard, I think, to write about these kind of things when we, I don't want to use the word criticize, but um, I don't know what the word I would want to use, but to highlight, I guess, the problems mm. that are happening because of these things that we do, yeah. right, as feminist activists. Because obviously, prior to going in and doing what we do, we don't know, like, how what the effects are. And so I hope this book will will be seen as just that, right? For us to kind of just like pause and regroup, right? Yeah. It's not to say like, let's stop, let's not do that, let's not do that. But it's just sort of like, okay, well, wait a minute. I think I think we're doing something that's problematic here. Let's just let's just stop for a minute, right? Uh, because um, because sometimes things that we do and then obviously we mean well, and then it ends up being harming for the women um, that, you know, I don't want to use, we're trying to help because that creates that kind of Mm. patronizing kind of like relationship. Um, But it's harmful for women, period. Right. And so, but, but I think it's always good to have this kind of conversation to just sort of like, okay, these are why it's problematic. Um, I provide example for this and maybe, and I come up with like a tiny tiny suggestion at the end of my book but maybe you'll come up with like bigger uh, better ideas out there so I think that's just sort of like where you know I hope my book can kind of like you yeah know, in that kind of I really liked as well because it was so like there is like there are certain themes that are going through my life this week do you, do you have that in your academic life like there's the, you know there'll be themes that are going through and at the moment I'm writing an article about zemiology about social harms and mm-hmm. I was really struck by the amount of social harm that is done by these, you know, by these sort of like neoliberal selfie type campaigns. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to start thinking about that, don't we? we? It's almost like we've become so self-absorbed that we need to take a step and see actually what are, you know, the ripple effects of our actions. It's almost like we need to sort of like rewind to a kind of like a community-based thinking rather than self-based thinking. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is exactly you. You got it like right on um, at the end of the book that there are like the three C's I talk about. Right. I mean, when we, before we post anything on social media, let's think of the content. Is it just about us mm. or is it about the community? Right. Uh, also, it's about the context. Again, is it about I or is it about I in the context? Right. Um, and then the collective. So like you said, you know, we have to shift this thinking. It's about the collective thinking. It's we can't just be it's about us. It's about I mean, I mean, it's about me. It's about me. It's about me all the time. Um, so I think that's like you, you know, you um, really, really capture that. It's, you know, we have to shift our thinking and, you know, like, how do we do that? And like I said, I only provided this like one idea, uh, which is what you mentioned about, you know, going back to the collective, thinking about the context, right? Thinking about the content itself. But um, I have to say too, though, um, you know, in some ways, this book also is a critique to the self-love and self-care culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially during the pandemic, I, again, like read on everybody's social media, don't forget to do self-care, you know, self-love is important during pandemic, right? So I read about that and I was like, oh, you know, because I've been writing about this and I think uh, the book was actually done by, by the time pandemic hit, actually. So I was like, okay, okay, so this is exactly what I talk about in my book. But here's the thing, obviously, as women, right? we are taught to always put other people first, right? Give your food to your partner, to your kids, to other people, right? You know, take care of the house, take care of this, you know, like all of that, right? So we were taught not to um, love ourselves. So obviously, you know, feminists wanted to rebel, you know, we want to rebel against that idea and we want to reclaim we have to love ourselves first. We have to put ourselves first, right? And so that makes sense, right? That that's why it's so seductive for us, you know, feminists to reclaim that and say self-love, you know, all of that. And I must I must admit that, you know, every year, me and my colleague, we have this um, annual um, writing and meditation retreat for women in academia, right? Um, and so even in that retreat, in the beginning of that retreat, you know, five or six years ago. I would actually use neoliberal sort of like ideas, which is self-love, self-care. As women in academia, we need to, you know, take care of ourselves first, you know, create time for ourselves, you know, those things. And then, so obviously that makes sense, right? We have to do that. But then the problem becomes when we keep saying no to other people, right? And then yes to ourselves, mm. right? And so we will, um, like what, an easy example would be like, it, it is actually getting harder and harder. And I've heard this from um, several editors of like journal or like publisher or whatever to get a manuscript reviewed, like at a peer, you know, like a, a journal, academic journal or like publisher, because now people, um, especially women of color say no, right? I don't have time to like review that manuscript or, you know, that article. Um, because, you know, I want to protect myself and all of that. So, right, that's good. But at the same time, right, there are only so many of us women of color, right? And if you know, probably in the U.S., um, full professors count, um, uh, women of color who are full professors count only for 6%, right, of full professors in the United States. So, so there's only so many of us. So what happens is that when there's like book that talk about, you know, women of color or by women of color or about women of color there are only so many of us and we get asked but then if many of us keep saying no 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 then we have this books right about women of color or by women of color don't get reviewed hmm. right and so in other words that's why in my book i talk about this thing called vigilant eco love as an antidote or in some ways as an alternative to this self-love culture because you know how do we then love without abandoning ourselves, but also not abandoning, abandoning others in the process, right? Because I feel the self-love culture kind of like, you know, we put ourselves first, we love ourselves first, but at the same time, we kind of like abandon others and kind of like leave them on their own. So I think- I think as well, you get a kind of trickle down effect, don't you? Because like, you know, I'm a junior academic. Yeah. So and I live on a precarious, in a precarious world. I'm not sort of like, I'm not tenured or anything. So actually what happens is my experience very recently, I'm not going to go into detail, but my, my very recently, my, my career almost like, you know, it got a real hit because I had to accommodate someone's holiday. 
I don't, mm. I, you know, I'm, you know, so, so self-care, self-love can actually mean trickle down to, you know, it, it contributes to other people's precarity if we're not, if we're not careful. Absolutely. And that's why now I feel, um, before I say no, I think about the ecology, right? The eco-love, yeah. the vigilant eco-love. When I say no to this manuscript, like, you know, what happened to this, right? And yeah. so I, I tr- that's what I'm trying to balance. So like I see the self as part of the ecology. It's not that I abandon myself either, right? It's not to say, okay, forget about self-love. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm talking about vigilant eco-love, but then that the self is part of that ecology, right? Mm. And so how do we, uh, really, really kind of like um, manage and really think about the ecology at the same time we do this. And we can only do this when we talk to each other, right? Yeah, when we talk right. to each other, when we act as a collective, right? And not just sort of like, okay. Um, and so, um, so and, and not act as sort of like an individual and just say no, you know, but, but you know, how do we like talk among ourselves and and kind of like you know support each other especially as as women of color in academia yeah. we really need to do that Absolutely. yeah definitely so you mentioned a word earlier on and I sort of highlighted it as something I wanted you to talk to me about uh what's phantasmagoria am I pronouncing yeah. that right yeah absolutely phantasmagoria and so um I Remember, I think I get, um, you know, this was somewhere in Europe. I don't remember exactly. I'm thinking it was in, in Naples or Napoli in Italy. And I went to these, um, like, uh, what do you call it? Like, a, I guess just an art exhibit just to make it easier. And then there was this kind of like a performance of Phantasmagoria. And, 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 and this is sort of like, if you remember, like, you know, the magic lantern, and then you'll have this sort of like image um, shown. And then so you can see like, and usually this refers to images of like ghosts or like scary yeah. movies, but, you know, back in the day, right before they have you know movies and stuff like that. So, so they have that and they project that onto the screen. Um, and so, so I kind of like, oh, you know what, this is what entering social media feels to me, right? This sort of like a a, a phantasmagoric kind of like experience where you enter um, an environment where there's something, you know, the magic lantern, or here I use that as a metaphor for uh, social media, where the social media or as a magic lantern, they project, right? They project, certain figures right obviously back then it was the figures of the ghost or scary uh, figures but now um i see what they're projecting right social media as magic lantern what they're projecting is this neoliberal selfie gaze right like you see that but more than that what i'm trying to use this metaphor for for social media as phantasmagoria is um the ways in which social media is both addictive right so it's addictive but it's also affective. Again, going back to that affect theory, right? It's affective, right? Um, and so what's brilliant about social media is that social media is um, it's like got us hooked, right? But it, it got us hooked because of, its, of that emotion, right? That affective, right? Um, but again, what is even more genius about social media is that it got us hooked through our emotion, but it does so by simultaneously alienating us, but making us feel at the same time or making us feel like we still have feeling at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So I talk about this more in chapter two um, and I use the word affect alienation to talk about this, right? So example is that um, when somebody is um, posting that they're like having this like the the, the worst breakup of their lives, whatever, like something that's painful, something that's sad. And that makes us feel something, makes us feel sad or whatever feeling, right? Because again, remember, we go to see phantasmagoria or we enter phantasmagoria and we go to social media because we want to feel, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of my students say, well, you know, I go to social media because I'm bored, right? And so we want to feel something. So we go there and we want to feel something. Now, but so we feel like we feel something, but it actually alienates us from the actual feeling that we're feeling, right? And so when we see other people like post 
things about how they have like breakup or, or like certain videos that make us feel sad. We feel that at the same time, we're alienated from our own feeling or from our own breakup um, because we haven't really processed that. Yeah. Right? And the more we spend time on social media, the more time we don't really process our feelings, right? Because we keep scrolling and clicking and clicking and clicking and we feel like we're feeling something. But the feeling that we're feeling is not exactly our own feeling. It's yeah. not our own pain. It's somebody else's pain. And it actually gets us away or distracts us from that feeling that from we have. Process. But also as well, when you talk about phanta- uh, phantasmagoria, like yeah. Really struggling with this. Um, actually, there's a haunting aspect to this. Absolutely. Yeah? There's Absolutely. a haunting because some of that social media comes back to get you later. Yeah. Because as you're as you're evolving, as you're kind of going through this like this single-handed evolution of your kind of like neoliberal sort of feminist self, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the campaigns of yesteryear that were mm-hmm. like, you know, really important to you, then they really can come back to get you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're right on on that because, and not only that, you know, like it's, it's haunting ourselves, it's also haunting other people. Yeah. Right. And so I'm talking about here, you know, when we um, even, I'm just trying to use like a very like mundane example of, you know, traveling to a certain place and somebody else posts about their traveling to Italy and, and posting this and whatnot. And the next time we go to Italy, right. I mean, their experience haunt us in some ways right and so this sort of like you know uh, the aspect that affective you know experience that we feel when we're on social media and then when we are actually experiencing this real life it really haunts us in that way and this is just traveling but you know talk about other things about sexual abuse sexual harassment and sexual violence which is what my book is about right and so so imagine when when we think of all of these things, right, and 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 therefore the consequences or or the effects are even more devastating or dangerous. Yeah, I get that. So you describe the book as answering Lisa Lowe's call to open mm-hmm. up conversation about the Asian American as an epistemological object. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah. So. Um, there is a ways in which we create Asian American as an object of study, right? And that is absolutely problematic, right? And so, and, and in certain disciplines, we have to study in this way because of the methods, right? And sp- specific methodology um, that we have to go through, right? And so, so by way of looking at social media, right? Um, and looking at these Asian American and Asian Canadian sort of like women, but at the same time, I look at it from their sort of like, strategic anti-essentialism, right? And the ways in which that they, um, so maybe I have to go back, um, well, take a step back here by introducing the concept that I talk about in the book, which is called racial oscillation, right? And I talk about how on social media, there is this thing, you know, racial oscillation that happens um, when either the user or the follower or like the audience or both, right? Um, they're playing around with the context of the posting. What I mean by that is that whether they provide the context or they don't provide the context or they disregard the context when they read the posting, right? Uh, And so something that is actually um, something about race can be be read as not about race or when something uh, was written as not about race and then get uh, read as about race, right? So they, they kind of like oscillate, right? So I'm, I'm arguing that racial oscillation in my book, it allows us to understand how Asian American uh, in digital technology or on social media um, become or are like being marginalized without being at the margin, right? So okay. marginalized without being at the margin. And I think this helps us understand. Um, and, and so this is what I meant by, you know, like, how do we we change, right? Or we shift how we think about Asian as an, as an object, or like, how do we know what we know about um, Asian, right? And so that's what I try to challenge here uh, by looking at, well, first of all, you know, like social media and, and, and the ways in which the, these Asian American and Asian Canadian women um, kind of, you know, position themselves, not as a fixed identity, right? But as the sort of like, oscillating right racially oscillating subjectivity 
that's not necessarily because of them, but also by how what they oppose are being read by others. Yeah, you call it a methodology of the oppressed. I wonder what you meant by that. Yeah, absolutely. So I love this sort of like methodology of the the oppressed uh, Chela Sandoval's um, idea, because I, I find that here's the thing, right? To live in this world right, um, as a colonized, as a marginalized person. And then if we try to, uh, let's just, you know, use our own example as academics, right? There are certain theorists, right, that you have to cite, Mm. right? But at the same time, as a marginalized person, these people that you have to cite are often not part of the marginalized group, Yeah. right? And so Chela Sandoval sort of like talks about, you know, this methodology of the oppressed, you know, how do you live and shift gears? And I love this. And I don't know how many of my students who, um, you know, because like I, I, when I was in Indonesia, I learned to drive car by like having that stick. Right. So so I know this sort of like the stick shift and you, you change the gears. Right. And so she's using that metaphor of like near um, shifting um, the stick, right, the, the gear um, to understand or to kind of like, you know, be here to understand, um, you know, what's going on, you know, and, you know, how to cite, who to cite, and at the same time, not betray our sort of like position. In other words, not let ourselves be co-opted and only cite the big theorist, right? And so we have to shift gears. We have to learn these, you know, people. And if if we have to, because sometimes our, you know, committee members, if you are still in grad school, tell you, you have to cite, you know, so-and-so like, you know, a white man or something like that. And then, um, then she said, okay, so how do we cite them at the same time, challenge what they're writing, right? In other words, so it fulfills that at the same time, we, as the oppressed, we have to learn this, you know, how to be in this world at the same time to live in that world. Mm -hmm. I'm actually getting this impression of actually shifting up gear, yeah, and just speeding <laughs> off. And oh, yeah, them yeah, in the rear view mirror where they belong. Oh, if I just try something with a beard, I'm prepared to cite as myself. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. I so, love that. Tell me, tell me how you conducted the research for this book, because your methodology is quite interesting. So tell us about the methodology you use. Yeah, absolutely. So I do have a section there in my book um, and I call this as not I'm not calling it. I mean, it is there. So I'm not creating something new. Um, It's feminist discourse analysis. Right. And when we are studying um, social media, which is expansive. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. It goes on, on and on and on and on. So how do you make your um, data manageable, but robust at the same time? So humanities, you know, scholars, again, I didn't make this rule, but uh, they, they uh, propose, they're like at least two ways to make this possible. One is to follow someone's um, social media account, which I do with like Rupi Kaur, with uh, Mia Matsumiya, and she has an uh, Instagram, uh, Instagram account called Perv Magnet. Mm-hmm. Um, I also uh, follow Sahara Pirsada's Twitter account. So I follow their account, right? And I just analyze all of um, what they posted up to a certain point. And I think it was May 3rd, um, 2019, I believe. Um, and then um, for the, um, and then the other um, method is to follow a specific hashtag. And so I do that with um, Margaret Cho's 12 Days of Rage, where I do, um, a search for um, specifically on Twitter with that specific hashtag, 12 days of rage. Um, and I analyze um, all of those that were um, available um, to me on a specific um, date. Um, and I manually log them. And luckily I had at the time an undergraduate um, research assistant to help me sort of like manage all of these data um, for me. And then discourse analysis is looking at patterns, right? And so it's sort of like looking at, you know, sort of like the emerging themes and and each chapter I focus or like each data obviously tells you different um, theme and therefore each chapter sort of like focuses on whatever theme that sort of like pops up uh, from whatever that I I was looking at. Uh, But what I did differently um, in in chapter where I talk about Margaret Cho's 12 Days of Rage is that I look not only at the pattern of what is being tweeted or being said, but also what is not being said, right? Mm -hmm. So what is Silence. So, like, where silence um, 
emerges or like merges um, in these sort of uh, posts. Yeah, yeah, that's quite that's 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 really interesting actually. It's really interesting because I, I, you know, like I said, I've been reading a lot about social harms, and sometimes the harms are as much about the silence as what's not as as what's said. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us about, you know, the, the sort of like the women that, that your book discusses and how you came to choose them? Why did you choose them and who are they? Give the yeah. yeah. So um, this is always the, the trickiest part about, you know, doing sort of like, you know, discourse analysis like this is like, you know, like, how do you find example that would allow you to talk about what you're talking about? Right. And so um, in terms of Margaret Cho, um, it was, as I mentioned, it Sort of, you know, like I went to her show and then she was talking about 12 Days of Rage. I was like, wow, like this is sort of like perfect. And obviously um, there were actually others that didn't make it into the book. Like I, I wrote it, I finished them. Um, and then it didn't sort of like go um, with, you know, like the whole sort of like the framing of the book. And I, I, I finally um, used sort of like Ferguson's sort of like way of like organizing, um, you know, what is neoliberal feminism? And I kind of like look at those sort of like the three themes, uh, liberalization through um, capitalism, um, and then, you know, talk about um, the individualization of um, persistent gender inequality. So so I talk about all of these in my book. And so that's how I came to um, kind of like, you know, like what would be the best um, example. So I did a lot of like research um, looking at, you know, specific um, social media accounts. And then I, I analyzed them, you know, just sort of like, uh, briefly and see and, and uh, to get like a, a the first stage sort of like okay like whether this um, accounts would um, be good to analyze and then um, for Ruby Cower I also want to again because I follow her um, and I also kind of like analyze her um, her Instagram account and it was you know amazing it was great but again like I said you know there was like something troubling. And so I wanted to um, have a um, an Instagram account that a lot of people may know about, uh, mm -hmm. because then it would be easier for them to um, to understand. The same thing with like Margaret Cho, as well as you know, I feel like she's a prominent figure. Um, you know, uh, the first um, most famous, I would say, um, a Korean American woman, sort of like female comedian. Um, and in terms of the the Mia Matsumi as Perv Magnet. I think when um, she started that account, it was um, all over media coverage. Um, and so it was on, I, I believe it was on NBC.com, I think Washington Post, um, you know, it was all over. And so what I do usually when I'm like interested in something is when something pops up, I would just file them away um, mm. in my folder. And I have like, like I said, like so many different folders that didn't make it into, you know, the end of the book. Um, and I did look at like, you know, like other other um, things, but uh, so this ends up being like the one that, you know, like after, um, you know, several tries, I was like, okay, okay, so I can I can work with this. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. So you tell us, you, you tell us that you wrote the book because you did not dare to confront. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? What, what didn't you want to confront? Yes. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, um, I wanted to write this book because I started seeing that, you know, there's something problematic here when people, you know, activists, my friends, my colleagues, my esteemed colleagues who are like all amazing um, and even myself. Right. And I was like, you know, why am I doing that? Right. Like, I don't like that, you know. And so so um, so when somebody posted something, activists or academics or you know, people from my own communities of practice, um, posting something from a neoliberal selfie gaze is very problematic, right? But I didn't want to confront them, um, you know, how people are like, you know, doing this the call out culture or like the cancel culture, right? And then, um, or, or, or troll them, right? Say mean things about certain things. And as I mentioned before, I tend to be uh, more quiet uh, or, or shy or whatever. Um, anyway, uh, and if I know that person, then, you know, you still have that sort of like boundary, I think, like, yeah. you know, that person, and so you would know what kind of reaction they will have. And so, so I'm not a believer. I, I shouldn't say I'm a believer. That's not the right word. I don't know why I said that, but I, I'm not a big, um, you know, like confrontational kind of like person anyway, like, um, I mean, in real life, you know, I try to 
either just, you know, do something else or something, but I, I try not to confront, you know, like we can talk about it later or something like that, but it's just sort of like, um, I don't tend to confront. And so, because I think, um, and so I said in my book that instead of like confront them online, I hope that they will read my book and they can see with evidence, right? With evidence, um, like what I mean by neoliberal selfie gaze and how they, and I too, uh, project and perform this neoliberal selfie gaze. Because sometimes even, um, you know, even not about my book, right? Let's say some someone said something that's racist or sexist or heterosexist. Many, many times, I mean, I've done this before where I, you know, called them out on that and whatever. And it ends up being um, a lot of the time not productive because I feel that in my own class, you know, in my own classrooms, um, it takes me a semester, right? A semester and a lot of books, a lot of readings for them to actually say at the end of the class, they do actually say things like, you know, in the beginning of semester, I thought like this. And then now I think like this, right? But it takes a semester, right? It takes time. It takes this sort of like, you read this and then you read this because you've read that. And then you, you know, it's, it's an engagement, right? It's a dialogue and then you get there. So I feel that on social media, we actually don't have that space. No. Um, and then if they never read this, they don't understand that, you know, they don't have that space and time to actually learn about each other. Then it's just you know, like people just like fighting and then then you, you're just trying to prove yourself right or you're just trying to defend yourself. And I talk about that in my book, too. You know, like what what do we do when we are being called out? Right. Because right now people seem to be like, you know, like quick to call out on somebody's behavior. But then when the person apologizes, they don't even care because it's like they did this. But hey, look, we, we're all in this, you know, obviously different in different ways. Some people are, yes, way, way more racist than others, right? And they need to stop that. And we need to have like that conversation, right? But if we, we have, if we provide no space for people to make mistakes, right? Um, and to like correct that behavior, if we don't think about the ecology, if we only think about ourselves, we're only think about like, projecting the best version of ourselves, well, then, you know, you're still being or performing that neoliberal selfie gaze rather than anything. That's so interesting. I just got so much from that because I was just thinking maybe that's entirely what this is about. It's the fact that you can never have that kind of joined up continuous conversation just mm -hmm. by virtue of the fact, say, for example, Twitter, I don't know how many characters it is nowadays, but you yeah. can't have a conversation with 56 characters, can you? And it's the same way with Instagram. You can't have a conversation just entirely just throwing images at each other. So it looks like it's actually communicating, but mm. actually it's not communicating at all, is it? It's just, it's, it's just like making lots of like separate statements that don't join up. Yeah, so, and I, I'm also trying... And I hope it, it, it's clear also in my book that that's why I, I feel that it's important to have that the, the fifth chapter, the, the final uh, chapter that, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, everything on social media is bad, that everything on social media will be um, neoliberalized, right? And so I'm, I'm saying that, you know, there are ways, there are ways to do this. There are ways to do this with social media. Here's one example of yeah. how we can do that, right? Uh, but it is certain that we can, we can only if we are to only use social media for our feminist activism, then nothing will really get changed because we need to look at different um, elements in that ecology. And digital environment is only one environment. I mean, right, yeah, right, one element in that uh, environment, right? And so we have to look at the physical, we have to look at the spiritual, we have to look at the emotional, we have to look at all these other things, right? The um, the issue of law, the issue of this, like all of these like things that are happening at the same time, we have to, you know, mindfully look at all of these things. Maybe one person cannot do all of that things, duh, right? That's why we need the collective, right? We need our togetherness, right, um, to, to, to go there. And so I think that's, that's what I, I hope that I, um, 
that I convey a little bit in this book is, you know, let's not just, you know, ban or like, let's not like forget about social media. It is useful. It is useful for certain things. It is useful in certain ways, even by changing the hashtag, like you said, you know, stop sexism, stop, you know, sexual harassment or stop, right. Rather than focusing on us, you know, like what would be, you know, let's come up with a, with a, with a better hashtag, right. Um, to highlight the, the structure, to highlight the, the ideological, right? Rather than just, you know, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. Yeah, yeah, no. You, like, I've, I've just got a few more things that I wanted to ask. You discussed the, the stigmatization of silence. Absolutely. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because it seems to me that silence is, is you know, is as important in these discussions. Who's not there is as important who's as who's there. Because let's be honest, quite often when people are posting, it's because they're trying to attract an audience. And when that audience doesn't come, it's quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So here I also want to talk about um, silence, particularly as a technology of testimony, right? In other words, silence is an apparatus of testimony. Hmm. Um, so that's why I... Um, came up with the term silence as testimony, right? And how on social media, silence when performed collectively can actually function as a testimony, right? So what I am saying is not that we should be silent or like we should not say anything, right? But social media is good for something, right? So if we can perform this you know, silence um, through the hashtag, silence as testimony. In other words, you have to mark it. Like you mark that silence as something. And when people mention that, when people use that hashtag, silence as testimony, silence as testimony, then it makes people think, why are they being silent, right? Why are they not saying anything? Um, and I feel this, especially during the Me Too movement, right? I mean, the Me Too hashtag, when they went viral, uh, I too, obviously, or Me Too, I guess, have um, experienced that, right? Uh, but I wasn't ready to share that on um, social media. And I do feel that um, many, that some people, uh, when they do share that, that they're being trolled for things that they were saying. In other words, the, the Twitter or like social media itself may not be a safe space for us, right? And I want us to highlight this, right? I want us to say, well, I am silent because of the structure that is not safe for us to speak. Right. And so we need to highlight that. We need to pay attention to that. We need to market. And on social media, we're able to hashtag it. We are able to say something about it. We're able to say something with our silence. And yeah. So that's what I meant. And so I even offer this you know, notion of silence as testimony as a way for us to rethink feminist you know, agency. Right. Because feminist agency is often um, sort of described as, you know, you have to speak up. You have to break the silence, right? Break the silence, right? But again, here, I want us to rethink with silence, about yeah. silence, so that silence can also be part of the repertoire um, of this feminist agency. Don't feed the bears, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so who did you write this book for? Who was your target audience? Absolutely. So um, this book is um, obviously academic and there's like some theories in it. And so uh, my primary audience will be women's studies scholars and students. Um, but also, I hope um, that I've done, you know, a good enough job of explaining things, explaining theories in a clear enough way so that this can also be used for people who are not or non-academics, right? And so obviously feminist activists, I would love it so much if they would be able to engage with this book. And again, not so much about, um, you know, kind of like changing their behavior to the way that I suggested in chapter five, because again, like I said, chapter five, is just um, a proposal of like, here's one thing that you can do, right? I'm not trying to say this is how to do it. This is not about that at all. But for them to think other ways to make their uh, practice more progressive, right? So it's an in invitation for feminist activists um, to read this book and to you know take their social media uh, practice to the next level. Yeah. But also I think um, for people who are on social media, I think they should read this book, right? It allows them to think, um, you know, how to be on social media, um, you know, more mindfully and more aware of how their uh, presence are being maybe co-opted by these competing or cooperating ideologies, right? So I think it's it's good to to have that. 
And I think you you captivate that really well with the Lord quote about um, you know, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the yeah. master's hat. Yeah. You've got Absolutely. to be aware of what we're using. What looks like this gift of communication may not be the kind of gift that we think it is. So yeah, finally, what comes next? What what have you got in the pipeline? Yeah, so um, I have written uh, another book and it is currently under review. So I'm keeping all my fingers and toes and everything else crossed. Um, it is about me traveling to 20 countries in one year and how um, I use that experience to think about pain and what it means to live with pain um, as, you know, or like what it means to have this pain, um, you know, and, and have sort of like a feminist life, right? Or, or pain as a, as a feminist life, right? And so um, Gloria and Zaldua sort of like say that. So I'm just sort of like, you know, expanding on, on her brilliance here um, in terms of, you know, you know, if feminist theory is useful, right? Um, how does it useful for us to think about pain differently? So I think that's, um, that's next. And so obviously, as you can tell, this book, also, the, the, the book that we're talking about today has that, that word pain in it as well, pain generation. So, so I guess I'm just into pain. <laughs> <laughs> so Transfer's shameless plug here. Who are you? What's the name of the book and who publishes it? Absolutely. Um, so I am Ayu Saraswati, uh, an associate professor at the University of, Ho of Hawaii. And um, my book is called Pain Generation, Social Media, Feminist Activism, and the Neoliberal Selfie by NYU Press. Excellent. My name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. <laughs>